Hello and welcome to episode six of the Kino Quickies podcast, the last episode in the series. I know, it's very sad. My name is Dominic Delaghi, and if you find yourself late to the party and this is the first time you've come across us, never fear. All previous episodes of the podcast are available to download at kinoquickies.com or wherever you normally get your podcasts. However, the podcast is based on a series of live screenings of 1930s Quota Quickie films at the Kino Cinema in Bermondsey Square in London, each one followed by a Q&A with myself and our resident Quota Quickie expert Dr Lawrence Napper, plus a different expert special guest each time, and those events, I'm afraid, have come to an end for a while. Who knows, though, one day there may be more. To keep up to date with any future seasons, follow us on Twitter at Kino Quickies or follow the link in the show notes to be added to the mailing list so you'll never miss a screening again. Oh, and by the way, if you're not entirely sure what I mean by a quota quickie, there's some information about that also in the show notes over at KinoQuickies.com. The film we screened for this final one of the season on Sunday, May 22nd, 2022 was the romantic drama Brief Ecstasy, from 1937. It was directed towards the end of the Quota Quickie era by Edmund Greville and stars Hugh Williams, Lyndon Travers and Paul Lucas as three tortured souls caught in a love triangle. I was extremely, supremely confident that the audience at the Kino would love this film, so as they settled themselves down in their comfy red seats with their delicious drinks bought at the excellent Kino bar that Sunday afternoon, I couldn't wait to tell them about it. Okay, good afternoon everybody, welcome back, welcome back to Kino for the last Kino Quickies. That's the bad news, the good news is that thanks to some heroic drinking, (laughs) the bar made enough money, so we're coming back for a second season, hurrah! So well done you! Uh, The other good news is that I think due to some uh, financial help, we will be dropping the ticket prices next season, which is also very good. Uh, So the 12.50 this season, I I think they're going to be £10 next season, so uh, more to spend on bit, exactly. And I think that constitutes a 20% drop in prices, and in these inflation-ravaged times, the Government Bank of England says, exactly, the Governor says, Oh, we're helpless in the face of inflation. No, not here, we're not. <laughs> so, yeah, so we're back in October for six films, finishing in December with a Christmas extravaganza. Spectacular. It's all very exciting. Don't know what the f- well, we know what that one is. That'd be Scrooge, on it? We don't know what the rest are yet. <laughs> so, back to today's film. It's Brief Ecstasy from 1937, as you can see. You may have noticed that it has a, a very similar title to another film, Brief, all say it together now. Well done, thank you. And they do have quite similar themes in a way, very similar themes. They both involve couples who meet and they fall passionately in love and then they're, they're, they can't get together, or do they, because of um, societal pressure and propriety and people's feelings and that kind of thing. And it comes uh, eight years before Brief Encounter, so you might think that it would be slightly more restrained but actually it's the reverse and the the broiling passion is only just below the surface at any any given moment you feel that you're never a million miles away from a spot of uh, hanky panky <laughs> it's always either just happened or about to happen or um and the two love 
complete tangent, my daughter, who's nearly 18, said to me the other day, she'd never heard the phrase hanky-panky before. <laughs> and I said, have you heard of slap and tickle? No. <laughs> have you heard, how's your father? No, she hasn't heard it either. I know we've got some academics in the audience, so what are you teaching these kids these days? So, I know, I know, I, I've, I've let myself down, I've let us all down. So the two lovers are played by Hugh Williams and Lyndon Travers, who are, again, comparing them to a Brief Encounter, they are, the camera loves them and the, it lingers over their, their gorgeous faces all the time. Celia Johnson, Brief Encounter, is also gorgeous. Trevor Howard, maybe not quite so much, but the, the gorgeousness of, um, of Hugh Williams and Lyndon Travers is, is never, never miss it if they can. And it's directed by, well, it's, his name is Edmund Greville, but he's French, so it could be Edmond Grevy. We don't know, do we? Ed Greville. <laughs> and he's French, so it's, this is perhaps another reason why um, there's this uh, lack of British reserve. Um, and he brings this kind of uh, visual panache to it that is really refreshing for Quota Quickie. He always thinks really carefully about how to compose a shot, how to segue from one, one shot to the other. I think it's really well worth watching for those reasons. And the, I've not seen a thousand of his films, but he does seem to deal with people behaving outside of the... Um, what would be expected of them. So another film of his is called The Romantic Age, uh, in which Hugh Williams, again, he, he plays a teacher who falls for the affections of a, of a student and he's willing to give up his, um, his career for her. And that's uh, yeah, all very overwrought. And the two other notable characters are Professor Paul Bernardi, played by Paul Lucas. And he gets top billing and he's, for me, He's the least interesting character in the film of, of the four. But another very interesting character is Martha, who plays Paul's housekeeper. She's played by Marie Nain. She's fantastic. She has this kind of very sad inner life and backstory that we get glimpses of. And it's great. I think you're going to really enjoy it. And, of course, after the screening, we'll have our Q&A with our resident quota cookie expert, the eminent and very cuddly Dr. Lawrence Napper of <laughs> King's College London. And we're delighted also to have Charles Barr, one of the, um, the country's leading, probably the first film academic in the country. So round of applause for both of those two esteemed <laughs> academics. Thank you very much. <laughs> and of course, uh, we'll be beginning again with our usual trailers for Talking Pictures TV, because both because we love them and because we're contractually obliged to share them. So, Paul, thank you very much if you could share those, and we'll see you after the film. Thank you. So as Paul, the Kino manager, goes to his mysterious lair to press the big red button that starts the film, we must come away and leave the audience to it for a while. We'll return later for the Q&A with Charles, Lawrence and myself. Before that though, let me run you through in the form of an extended illustrated synopsis, the breathless plot of Brief Ecstasy. As the title sequence finishes, we find ourselves in a busy West End sandwich bar at lunchtime. In walks a handsome young fellow called Jim, played by Hugh Williams. Where's the telephone, please? Here, sir. As he waits for the call to connect, he spies an attractive, if aloof-looking woman sitting further along the counter. This is Helen, played by Lyndon Travers. The meet-cute has begun. Hello, this is Jim. I'm sorry, I've been held up. Well, don't be so impatient. All right, I'm on my way. Goodbye. 
As he turns to leave, he knocked a cup of tea all over Helen. Oh, I'm terribly sorry. Here you are, sir. Oh, thank you. Jim attempts to mop up the mess, but when he touches too much of Helen's legs, she slaps him and storms out. Would you like anything else, sir? <laughs> Helen has left behind a document case which is beautifully labelled with her initials and her address in Woburn Place. Some time later, Jim is sitting at the top of the stairs outside Helen's room in her boarding house. When she arrives home, he hands her the case and offers his apologies once more. She's grateful, but would still prefer him to leave. Couldn't you come out to supper with me? Do you always ask girls out to supper? No, not if I meet him at lunchtime. I'm sorry, but I have a lot of work to do. You'd better be going. Please. He glances at the initials on her case, H.N. Hannah. No? Henrietta. Hortense. Why don't you go, Helen? I think he's rather nice. Thank you, Marjorie. I'm perfectly capable of making up my own mind. Good. Then where shall we go? Helen. All right. If it'll make everybody happy, I'll go. But only for a coffee. Thanks to the timely intervention of Helen's neighbour from across the landing, Jim has secured his date. It turns out that underneath his overcoat and silk scarf, he'd been wearing formal evening attire all along, and that one cup of coffee becomes a whole evening of champagne, music and dancing. A montage sequence shows them falling in love over the course of what turns out to be a very long night, and they arrive back at Helen's room in the early hours. She's clutching a cuddly bunny rabbit he bought for her at the nightclub. They're exhausted and clearly besotted with each other. They kiss passionately. It looks like not for the first time that evening. And it all looks like things are going swimmingly until Jim drops a bombshell. Helen, I should have told you before. I'm leaving for India today. My father lives there and he's very ill. I've got to go. I wish I'd never met you. Jim, please don't say that. They kiss one more time. Helen retreats tearfully into her room. Jim bows his head and leaves, presumably for India. Shortly afterwards, Helen's friend from across the hall, Marjorie, played by Renee Gadd, comes in to hear the gossip. There's an old bookworm like you gadding about to the strange man till seven in the morning. <laughs> I wonder what Professor Bernardi would say if he knew. What's he got to do with it? Oh, nothing. I just thought he might be jealous, that's all. And be ridiculous. He's old enough to be my father. That doesn't stop him being fond of you. He's a great scientist. I admire him. And he considers me as one of his most promising pupils. Yes, well, he won't if you don't hurry. Oh, I nearly forgot. He's lecturing this morning. Yes, and in case you've forgotten where, dear, it's the University College. So we have our first mention of Professor Paul Bernardi, one of Helen's lecturers at university. She greatly admires him, and if Marjorie is to be believed, he's rather fond of her too, and not just because she's a fine student. Helen rushes to the lecture, but is a few seconds late and is not allowed to enter. Later on, she goes to visit Professor Bernardi, played by Paul Lucas, to explain her absence. The apology's over. Professor Bernardi, who does seem a little awkward around Helen, makes her a proposition. I believe my research work in connection with the transmutation of metals to be worthy of the most sincere workers that I can acquire. You mean? I mean when you have completed your final examinations, you can come to my laboratory as my assistant. Well, that is if the idea appeals to you. You think I'm good enough for that? Yes. You are keen on your work, and that is very valuable these days. 
I suppose half my students this morning were asleep because they had been dancing all night or out at parties. You may be quite wrong about me. I may not be the kind of person you think I am at all. I made my suggestion. Please, think it over seriously. We now leap thousands of miles across the globe to a post office somewhere in India. Jim, dressed in a colonial white suit and pith helmet, is torturously attempting to write a telegram to Helen. The previous attempts are strewn across the floor. Eventually, he decides on a form of words that's both simple and to the point. Can't live without you. Will you marry me? Jim. Back in Woburn Place, we see Jim's telegram drop through Helen's letterbox. Great! Their future together seems secure and we're only 14 minutes into the film. But who's this? It's a cleaning woman going from room to room. Not noticing Jim's telegram on the floor, it gets jumbled up with some waste paper and the oblivious cleaner takes it away to be binned. As she closes the door of Helen's room, the cuddly bunny rabbit falls off a chair landing on the floor next to Helen's diary, which is clearly labelled with the year. The year is 1932. We skip ahead now to 1937, and Professor Paul Bernardi is giving a lecture to the Royal Society on his latest discoveries in the field of alloys and metals and something or other, and it's received extremely well by the audience. And now, with your permission, I would like to bring a personal note into this lecture and introduce to you someone who has, during the past five years, been of invaluable help to me in my work. Ladies and gentlemen, my wife. The professor's wife, seated in the front row, stands to receive the applause. The professor's wife is Helen. There have been some developments over the last five years. There are four very significant characters in Brief Ecstasy. There's Jim... Helen and Paul, who constitute our love triangle, and back at the Bernardis' home, we meet the fourth. This is Martha, the professor's longtime housekeeper, who appears to like and admire him, but clearly has little time for Helen, a dynamic which Paul has failed to notice. Martha's a strange woman, Paul. Yes. Sometimes I think she almost hates me. Oh, no, no. I know Martha has a strange manner, but after all, she's looked after me for 20 years. No. <laughs> Come, darling, let's be gay now. This is our great night. Yours and mine. <laughs> to our work. To our love. As they toast, the unseen Martha glares at them from outside the room. Paul makes a request of Helen. He would like her to give up work and become a stay-at-home wife, fearing that if she continues to work as hard as she has been doing, she'll get ill. Helen seems unsure at first, but eventually agrees. And almost as though this is a second proposal of marriage, Paul presents her with a ring. Martha, still spying from the hallway, appears distraught at this and runs to her room at the top of the house where, hidden in a drawer, she has a framed picture of her beloved Paul. This is why she harbours so much resentment towards his younger, more attractive wife. Meanwhile, the Bernardis retire for the evening and start to get ready for bed. Helen, having accepted and even warmed the idea of being a housewife, appears to have more than sleep on her mind and emerges from the bathroom looking ravishing, only to find her older husband, much to her deflated disappointment, in bed and fast asleep. Time passes. Paul is happy at work with his new male assistant, whilst Helen is at home, trying to get to grips with her new role as a housewife. It doesn't appear to be her forte, and she's miserable. 
Her relationship with Martha has become even worse, with almost open contempt from both sides. And then Paul has a visitor. Oh, Grant, to see you. It's good to see you, sir. Just like you to suddenly turn up without warning. Yes, I ought to have warned you. Oh, that doesn't matter, my boy. Only I should have had the pleasure of looking forward to your arrival. Well, I didn't know until the last moment. I got the job of bringing back one of those new flying boats. Oh, you literally arrived out of the blue, huh? Not much blue. It's pretty filthy weather. You've certainly grown up. Oh, Helen. Helen, dear. After more than five years, Jim has reappeared. Helen, this is Jim Wyndham. My wife. How do you do? Neither Jim nor Helen acknowledge that they've met each other before, and as the conversation progresses, we discover that Paul was friends with Jim's father. Paul talks affectionately about Jim as a boy, who, it turns out, was something of a cheeky young scallywag, and Paul clearly holds him in high esteem. Paul has to go to work, but before he leaves, declares that a celebration is in order, and they arrange to meet up later at a nightclub in town. Helen and Jim are left alone. You know, I've met you somewhere before. It's very unlikely. Have you ever been out east? No. Have you ever been out west? No. Then it must have been two other people. It seems implausible that Jim can't remember who Helen is, but this appears to be the case. Later that evening at the Continental Club, he's still racking his brains when Paul arrives and says that, unfortunately, he must leave them as he's been called away on urgent business in Scotland. After Paul's departure, Jim, in an echo of his first meeting with Helen in that sandwich bar back in 1932, knocks a drink over. Cigarette? Oh, I'm terribly sorry. He starts to mop up the mess when suddenly... Now I remember. 45 Woburn Square. Let's go. Back at home. Why didn't you answer my cable? What cable? I never heard from you. I sent you a cable telling you I... Please don't discuss what happened or what didn't happen. I hate to. In this house. Shall we dance? No. Why not? You wouldn't refuse if I were a stranger? You are a stranger. You must be. Of course they begin to dance, and then, in possibly the biggest coincidence in the history of time, the radio announcer introduces the song to which they fell in love back in 1932. And now, ladies and gentlemen, an old favourite of five years ago, with you. When did you remember? When I first saw you. Shall I wait up for Mr. Bernardi? No, Martha. You can lock up now. Mr. Bernardi won't be home tonight. Good night, Mr. Wyndham. The following day, with Paul still in Scotland, Jim announces that he's borrowed a small plane from a local aerodrome and he's going to take it out for a spin. He wonders if Helen would like to accompany him. At first, Helen declines the offer because, in a very serious conversation with Paul the previous day, she had solemnly promised him that she would never take such a crazy risk as to go up in one of those new-fangled aeroplane things. But, after yet another run-in with the, quite frankly, unpleasant Martha, she changes her mind, and off they go. They spend the day together somewhere on the coast, sitting closely together, holding hands, watching waves crash against the rocks. It's all very romantic. Eventually, Jim decides he doesn't like the look of the weather and says they should head back. 
He shouldn't take long and they'll soon be home. Paul need never know that Helen went against his wishes and flew in a plane with this reckless young scamp. But on the way home, visibility becomes terrible and the fuel runs low. Disastrously, Jim is forced to crash land the plane in a field. Shaken but unhurt, they fetch up at an isolated pub where they're forced to spend the night due to the phone lines having been taken out by the accident. It does look as though some extramarital activities are about to occur, but then, thanks to the arrival of the landlady at an inopportune moment, decency prevails. The following morning, Paul has arrived back at his office on an early train, buoyed up and excited by his successful business trip to Scotland. He orders flowers to be sent home to Helen, and then, as he's telling his team about the exciting things that lie ahead in the field of non-corroding metals, he receives a phone call from Martha. Hello? Can you tell me if Mrs. Bernardi will be home for lunch? I suppose, yes. But why ask me, Martha? Mrs. Bernardi and Mr. Wyndham went out yesterday morning, and they haven't come home. Paul rushes home and finds out from Martha that Helen and Jim arrived home just ten minutes before him. He hurries upstairs. Why, Paul, what on earth are you doing home at this time of day? I went straight to my laboratory, but hurried back. I was worried by your absence. Whatever happened? Oh, my dear, I'm so sorry. Mr. Wyndham and I were in town all day. We went to a cinema, and after supper, it was so foggy, we decided it was better to stay there. Stay where? I stayed at my club, and Mr. Wyndham stayed at his. It was too late to ring Martha. She would never have heard the telephone up in her room. A boy delivers the flowers that Paul had ordered earlier, along with a note which reads, I love you, Mrs. Bernardi. Helen is genuinely moved by the gesture. Paul summons Martha to his study. Martha! Why did you behave like that on the telephone? I thought you ought to know that Mrs. Bernardi hadn't come home last night. That's quite true, and naturally I was worried thinking something might have happened to her. Might have happened to her. I go back with my eyes open. How dare you stand there and speak like that about my wife? It's time someone spoke out. Mrs. Bernardi and Mr. Wyndham were detained by fog. So I've been told. Well, if you are determined to behave in this manner... I'm determined to stop other people behaving as they are behaving. Martha, you've been extremely impertinent to Mrs. Bernardi for some time. I won't stand any more of your insulting remarks. The sooner we part, the better. You can take a month's notice. Martha is naturally devastated. After 20 years. <laughs> she may have just been fired, but she's still on the payroll, so Martha answers the phone. It's the landlord of the pub in which Helen and Jim stayed the previous evening. As she listens, a smile spreads across her face. Mr. Bernardi, you're wanted on the telephone. Hello? I've oh, just explained all the details to someone. Now, the point is, a young couple stayed here last night, and I knew your telephone number because they asked me to ring up, but the telephone weren't working. All I want to say is the young lady left a ring here, and I want to know where to send it. Keep it. Keep it until I give you further instructions. Saying nothing to Helen, Paul returns to work, but is tortured by thoughts and images of Helen in Jim's arms. Back at home, Helen and Jim continue to flirt blatantly, Martha at all times listening in. Helen enjoys the attention but refuses to take things further. Even in Paul's presence, under his paranoid and watchful eye, they laugh and flirt like young lovers. <laughs> I'm going to bed. Good night. What's the matter, darling? Helen, what? Good night, Mr. Wyndham. Preoccupied and distracted at work the next day, Paul receives a phone call. Hello? Paul, I'm sorry to worry you with domestic details, 
Martha is threatening to leave. To leave at once. Well, what do you expect me to do? I gave her notice. It's no use begging her to stay now. Will you be home to dinner? Uh, no. No. I've had an urgent call out of town. Don't expect me back tonight. Helen begs Martha to stay at least one more night, but to no avail. She leaves. Jim and Helen are once again left alone together. Jim, there's something I want to ask you. Martha's gone. Paul won't be home tonight. And I wondered if perhaps you'd better go up to town. Does my going up to London for one night make any difference? If we're so afraid of each other, doesn't it prove that we're meant for each other? Didn't we know that five years ago? Yes, but that's the past. Since then, there's Paul. Can't you see what it would do to him and to me if I betrayed him? Paul is driving through the rain. Is he on his way home to catch them together? Helen and Jim are in turmoil. She's locked herself in her room, distraught. Jim begs her from the other side of the locked door to be his. And now we see where Paul has been driving. Not home, but to the pub in which Helen and Jim had stayed. He questions the landlord. I spoke to you on the telephone about the ring that was left here. Aye, but you were not the man who stayed here with the young lady, though. Here, what was the ring like? Square-cut emerald, set in platinum. Where did the young lady leave the ring? Upstairs. The young couple were terribly upset. What did they come here for? Well, they just dropped in on us, as you might say. Lucky they weren't killed. The aeroplanes ain't half dangerous. Aeroplanes? Yes, they crashed in the fog and cut the telephone wires and ruined some of my grazing. Still, that's nothing. The young lady were properly shaken up. She had the best room and he slept in the box room. It's called the box room because that's what the bed's made of. So that's why she lied. Was that? <laughs> nothing. Oh, I thought perhaps she was ordering drinks. You're right. I want everybody to drink the health of the most foolish man in the world. <laughs> Ah, thank you. Finally reassured that nothing untoward happened between Jim and his wife, Paul decides to head home. Back at the Bernardi house, Jim has packed his bag. It would appear he's decided to do the decent thing and leave. He goes back to Helen's locked door one last time. Helen, I must see you. Just once more. She unlocks the door. And darling, I can't leave you. We love each other. You're going away with me tonight. We go up to town now and leave by air for ourselves in the morning. And then the east. Say yes. No. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, she said yes. And that's just as downstairs. The front door is being slowly, quietly opened by an unknown hand. Is it Paul, or maybe Martha, sneaking back to have one last attempt at catching Jim and Helen in each other's arms? But now, poised at this crucial moment, we must leave our tormented foursome of characters. For a while, as we head back to the present day and to the Kino for our post-show discussion. As ever, after the Q&A and after all the spoiler warnings in the world, we will return to Helen, Jim, Paul and Martha to hear how it all pans out. But for now, you can shuffle your bottom backwards from the edge of your seat and settle down to hear what the audience at the Kino thought about Brief Ecstasy and, of course, hear the thoughts of our special guest, Charles Barr. Hello, everybody. Hello, everybody. So, yay, nay, hooray, boo, hooray. Very confident about this one. Very, very confident indeed. So, Charles, welcome to the Kino um, here in London. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me from you, the provinces. You're very London. welcome. Mm -hmm. 
we originally had a different film in this slot, another early evening film called The Gaunt Stranger, which I'm arguing for for season two. But I think it was your suggestion that we chose Brief Ecstasy. Why, why did you choose this film? Well, I think it's it's more interesting film than Gaunt Stranger. And also, um, Gaunt Stranger is one of the very first films that Michael Balkan produced at Ealing. And uh, Brief Ecstasy comes from the year before uh, Balkan took over. And I think it is very interesting to relate the continuities and differences between those two periods. And also, I just um, am very fond of Brief Ecstasy more than I am of Born Stranger, though that's quite an interesting film, and I think you should should show it. I always wanted to see Brief Ecstasy ever since reading Graham Greene's review of it, and I was looking for that and I couldn't find it last night. Uh, but I know that he really rated it highly um, in a short review, and Graham Greene didn't much like the uh, ordinary run of, of British films in the 30s, did he? He didn't have much... Uh, he liked Carol Reed's films, like Midshipman Easy, which was also shot at Ealing pre-Balkan. And I just remember he particularly loved the scene at the end uh, when uh, Lyndon Travers is behind the locked door and kind of lying on the bed and everything is very tense. He just... Um, that was Graham Greene's kind of scene. Uh, I have a quote from the Graham Greene review here. I like, oh, I like a right. quote. Yep. He said it had a starved sexuality. A what? A starved sexuality. Oh, yes. It's quite a nice phrase, That's isn't it? very good and very apt. I've, um, because I once wrote about a book about Balkans Ealing, 1938 onwards, which is the kind of coherent, well-known period, celebrated period, and from which most of the films were available, either... Uh, even in the 70s when I wrote the first version of it, uh, most, you could get to see most, all of them, either through the archive or through, through cinema release, still some of them, the comedies. But the, the films that were made between 1930 and 1938, uh, when Basil Dean was running the studios and there were some films that were made under his uh, um, auspices and other ones the studio was just rented out, but they were a very interesting range of films. Suddenly they've all become available, almost all of them through network, Ealing Rarities, 56 films, I think, were released in that series very recently, just before COVID. And so many of them are so interesting, like Brief Ecstasy. And there's a continuity, in this case, particularly through Ronald Neem. Uh, you spoke about Brief Encounter before. Yeah. And um, I, Ronald Neem was pr- whose producer, wasn't he, Brief Encounter? He produced Brief Encounter was a cinematographer on this. Yeah, he was a cinematographer on this. And uh, Brief Encounter was based on a play by St- called Still Life. I like to think to think of Ronald Neem suggesting, you know, we could call it Brief Encounter, you know, an echo, echo of Brief Ecstasy, because there are so many things in common. So many things, yeah. yeah. Even well, down shut, to I'll shut up. Now. No, even down to the idea that in Brief Encounter, it's poor old Fred who's sitting at home, oblivious or seemingly oblivious. You think in mm-hmm. Brief Encounter that he's, a, that he's oblivious. But at the end, he has this line where he says, um, I don't know who you've been, but thank you for coming back to me. You've been away a long... Yeah. You've been a long, long way away. Oh, my God. It's like a dagger in my heart. <laughs> so it's like he's known all along. Whereas in this, Paul, you can see Paul's torture all the way through. And I think plot-wise, this film is 
kind of extravagant. You're always kind of on your edge of your seat, which way is it going? And after the film, I overheard the pair of you two eminent professors talking about that particular plot point, which is the fact that Jim seemingly doesn't remember Helen, which seems a bit odd. Can I ask the audience, is that something that, did you buy that? Please wait for a mic to get to you, otherwise you won't be picked up for the podcast. So I do think it's interesting, strange, that he goes from, I have, I don't remember you, or like, oh, have we met before, to, what, a scene or two later, suddenly he's like, run away with me, <laughs> come away. Like, if he really didn't remember her, then she should say like, well, you didn't even remember me 10 minutes ago in this movie, so no, I won't be going away with you. It's the spilling but, of the drink brings it all back. Yeah, it? yeah. well, and I was, I was also sort of saying, it's interesting that from sort of a more modern standpoint to his disregard for her personal boundaries, you see from the very first encounter that they have together, and it continues all the way through the film and sort of escalating, where first it's the drink and he's sort of inappropriately you know, handsy as he's like dabbing her off. And then throughout she keeps saying, no, I don't want to, no, I, no, no, no. And he keeps pushing and pushing and pushing. And then it ends with her literally on one side of a locked door, begging him to leave her alone, essentially. And he continues to sort of push and push and push. So I sort of looking at it from modern eyes, I, I found that quite compelling as well. In the, in the splashing of the drink scene, she takes offence at the um, at him dabbing her leg. He's just just been patting her boob about two seconds before. Um, that was seemingly was okay. Is it or is it a cumulative effect? Is it boob then leg? But um, but in the, the I mean in that thing about you know whether he remembers or not. I, I mean I at first I read it as being that that was sort of code that he was giving to her for like shall we shall we resume this? And she was saying, well no, let's not resume this. But then, like, you get the bit where he spills things, and then he's like, oh, yes, no, I do remember you. So it's not like he clearly, we're supposed to understand, doesn't remember her. And there's a sense in which, I mean, I guess Charles was saying, you know, there are plenty of films made in this period, like a really kind of fabulous melodramas where he doesn't remember her. Only Yesterday is, a kind of, guess, the classic example. And Random Harvest is a... I mean, there are reasons why he doesn't remember in Random Harvest. And only yesterday he doesn't remember her just because he's a bloke and you know, he's really had plenty of other girls. And I think that's what this is referring to, but you sort of... I'm a bit confused by it. Dom, Dom, can I... I was just going to say, I mean, I can't remember what I did five minutes ago, so I think five years, I could quite... From my older perspective, I was thinking, well, yeah, I'd quite go with that. I just wouldn't have a clue. I remember everybody I've ever proposed marriage to. <laughs> no, my, my, my first interpretation was he was angry with her because she he wanted her to come with him and was madly in love with her. And she had just ignored didn't him, reply so to the he telegram. was angry, and so he pretended he didn't recognise her. But you felt that there was a, a tension between them, so you, I, I felt that they probably didn't know each other. But it was equivocal. Yeah, I think it is equivocal, because I read it as um, he really didn't remember her, and he's a bit of an opportunist. Well, he is an opportunist, he's a bit of a cad, and uh, that, is re that foreshadows his later reluctance to confront Paul. And I also think it feeds into the Graham Greene thing, which is, in one sense, it's quite a moral film. I mean, I guess that fits in with the brief encounter. I mean, I always get into trouble for interpreting brief encounters that basically, you, you know, he's a bit, Trevor Howard's a bit, you know, he's quite pushy about it. And she's, again, she's sort of saying, well, I don't think this is, I don't feel comfortable with this. And he really goes for it. And you kind of get the feeling that, you know, he's done this before. 
And you certainly get that with Hugh Williams in this film, don't you? And men, I think the two men come pretty badly out of the film because of the way Hugh Williams kind of draws back when she seems ready. Okay, let's let let's go for it, basically. And oh, I don't want to make a fuss. <laughs> Suddenly pulling back. Yeah. And and Bernardi, you know, he's from people saying from today's perspective well from today's perspective the thing of taking her on as his research person and then now we're married give up your career stay at home with mrs danvers watching over you as it were um he's so can't have much sympathy for him can you paul lucas i don't particularly have much sympathy for him um, do, do you know was he a big big star than paul lucas he, he gets top billing and he's not really the main does he have Stars, a... He? He's just going on, like Lyndon Travers, they're both going on to The Lady Vanishes the next year uh, when Lyndon Travers has a much attenuated part, equally a, a, a sort of victim part of, as Cecil Parker's mistress. Uh, and Luke, Paul Lucas is the, the Nazi figure, the Nazi doctor. But he doesn't have top billing, does he, in... Lady Vanishes, what does he have top billing in? I don't know. He has top billing in this, but also because he, yeah. he did go to America, this film, under a different title. Dangerous Secrets, was it called? Something, something like that, that, yeah. And he was an American slash Hungarian... I mean, I think perhaps he was just the biggest star in this film at the moment where mm. it came out. Okay. Well, obviously, the other two become bigger stars, I guess. It doesn't mean to say he was a massive star. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So Paul... Paul Poor Paul Lukash, he's not getting a, a great uh, a, a great representation. But he so Paul Lukash won an Oscar in 45, 40s, mid forties in Hollywood. So he was a pretty you know pretty weighty star. But I actually think that you're misinterpreting the film completely because I don't think the men themselves or their characters are that important because this is a film about a woman and woman's sexuality and woman's attraction and the men are, are ciphers you know for marriage and reliability and warmth as he gives her at the end he keep, you know he's keeping her warm as at the end of brief encounter when she's knitting socks by the fireplace so there's the two sides of a woman's sexuality do you want warmth and solidity and you know at home and and all those things reliable things or do you want that danger and and the you know the, the lust and the sexuality which as it turns out Hugh Williams is not not really up for is he he's kind of you know he, he no. just yeah, he's a bit pathetic he just gives it? it up in the end so i think you're looking at the film the wrong way That's she she, she would she would go with you wouldn't she if he'd if he'd confronted paul at that moment she would have walked out the door with him would she though well <laughs> who knows we'll, we'll wait for the sequel sorry go on yeah i thought that the the point about i think it's about woman's sexuality i think is a really good one and and i think the sort of martha subplot plays in that as well because i think martha's role becomes much larger. I mean, I hadn't seen this film before. It becomes quite quite a bit larger than I was expecting it. Um, and I think I think the Danvers comparison is a really good one because I was also thinking of you know it's it's Danny, but a few years before. Um, but I thought the film did such a, a, a fascinating job, sort of balancing that kind of ominous creepiness, which she does have, particularly at the beginning, with this kind of real glimpse into her as a person as a person who's been who's suffering and who's who's frustrated for reasons of class for reasons of age and, and for the sort of unrequited romance that she's built up and i thought that that to me was one of the more most interesting parts of the film honestly this character and how she was portrayed yeah i think she's my favorite character actually yes, martha i mean it's just a question really um i found the women the much more interesting characters in the movie 
how aware would the directors have been of that kind of position of with when they were directing? You know, we're kind of we're fifty, no, eighty years ago, and you know, women's issues are much more prevalent now than they were eighty years ago, obviously. So what I'm trying to understand is were the directors aware of how they were portraying the women in a very as we see them, or were they, or were they portraying them in a very, very different way to how, how we would expect them? Would they have been quite radical at the time? Yeah. I don't know, really. Do you have any thoughts on that? For a British movie in the 30s, that was pretty radical, I think. I, I mean, much is made of the fact that Greville was half French and half British, and, and that was sort of the reason given for his interest in and another another aspect of graham green's review of the film is all about her her bottom on the on on the pool table you know <laughs> he refers to that and that sort of that that tracking shot of her body sort of from here up to yeah is is quite so so that was uh, in a way maybe he greville was able to get away with it because he was french you're half french i don't know but greville played around a bit I have to say I met his family <laughs> years and he, after he long 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 time after he died and they they were not big fans of of, he, of him because <laughs> he basically abandoned the family because his, his wife he was married to a woman called Vanda Vanda Greville was his wife and he, he I think he played played away quite a bit so they, they were not I mean it's interesting to hear that actually because I mean my thought about the answer to that question of you know were the directors you know how did you know, it, it, you know, it's about a woman's sexuality, but of course, it's a whole load of male creatives. And actually, if you look at some of Greville's other films, you're like in France, he had directed Josephine Baker in Princess Tam Tam, which is like really centrally about the female character. Um, and here's the other film of his that I've seen, the other quote of Quickie, which is called Secret Lives. Also, it's absolutely centrally like the, the female character is completely central, and it's about her desires and her. Well, the ways in which her desires are thwarted by the system. So, so. let's say he was interested in women. I think <laughs> we, can, we can agree on that. As was Hugh Williams. Should we go there? Um, this is just... Uh, let's come away from the academic side of it now. Go to come down to the, the dirty gossip. Charles, yesterday, you on an email, you pointed out to me that Renee Gadd... So, Renee Gadd plays Marjorie, who is Helen's flatmate over the hall in Woburn Place. And... Um, Charles pointed out to me that Rene Gad is mentioned in Matthew Sweet's book, Shepherd and Babylon. I went back and read that section, and I remember the section, I hadn't connected that it was these two people. So basically, when Matthew Sweet met up with Rene Gad in about 2003, not long before she died, she was very aged, she, her memory was failing, so she couldn't remember most of her life or roles or husbands, of, <laughs> of which she had many. But five years before Brief Ecstasy, she had had this outrageous affair with Hugh Williams. So when they meet on the, on the stairwell, on the, on the landing, they were all flames. And then she, when she says, why don't you go with him, Helen? He looks rather nice. <laughs> she was speaking from experience. And they used to, um, <laughs> apparently, in the sort of end of the 20s, early 30s, they were working together quite a lot, I think at either Shepparton or Twickenham. They'd finish filming for the day. They'd charter a plane, a small plane, like in Brief Ecstasy. They'd fly to Le Touquet in France, and they would gamble and drink and spend time together and then come back to the studio the next morning and, um, and continue filming. It, it's very good, the, the, the visit to René Gad in, in Matthew Sweet's book. It's yes, very lovely, vivid. Yeah. 
and uh, it's almost sadistic the way he forces his, he can't get a reply at first and then she answers the door. She's forgotten their appointment. She doesn't remember much, as Dom says, but he do, she does remember the affair with Hugh Williams, which is the main <laughs> Who thing. Who wouldn't, from the sounds and, of it? It sounds amazing. And, of course, that was in 1932, and now they're filming in 1937, so that's the exact time span between the first meeting uh, and then the present day of the film. Yeah. But she's very good, isn't she, Renegade? She's great, yeah. Just in a few words and a few glances. She's so good, and she was... Reminds you that she was a, a big star in her time, wasn't she, just for a few years? Yeah. And then she didn't make a film after after The Blue Lamp when she has a very small but telling part in The Blue Lamp as as an antisocial car driver who who says very ironically in the context of the film, why can't you police do something useful instead of find a few murderers in, rather than giving um, ordinary people par um, uh, punishments for car offences when the... the there's just been the death that they're investigating. Yeah, but that's her last uh, last appearance. But it's a very telling one. Yeah, and then it. fifty years later, she's talking to Matthew Sweet. That's how what film history, how film history works, and yeah. so often. Yeah, he just bagged everybody, didn't he? At the, just at the very last moment, yes. Matthew. Victoria moment. Hopper. Yeah. He caught just bef just in time. Yeah. Well, it's twenty-five to four. We normally finish about half three. Any, anything else from the audience, or anything else you want to say, Lawrence or Charles, or? Oh, Lawrence has got his little finger up. I have a thing I'd like to say, which oh, is uh, just thinking about this film in comparison to the other films that we've seen in this series. I think this is the most filmy. <laughs> it's the most cinematic. It's the most... You can see why Graham Greene was so keen on it because it's absolutely a filmmaker's kind of film. And, like, I mean, particularly those moments where... Basically, they push the story along through editing alone. There's various sections where it feels like a silent film. There's very little dialogue. There's a whole swathe of, like, movement. You know, when she leaves, you know, you get a close-up of her, you know, shoving the thing in the suitcase, shutting the su another sh close-up of the suitcase, Martha, shutting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, like, it absolutely is narrated in that kind of way, which is relatively unusual, I think, for a quote a quickie where, you know, like last time we were watching say it with flowers where like you didn't get any like editing <laughs> storytelling was not told within within the edit and that, and that falling in love montage is amazing yeah that, uh, all of that sort of lovely, stuff yeah. it's very kind of bravura sorry lawrence um i just wanted to link back to something you both mentioned at the, at the outset which is the other continuity between pre and post balkan ealing is the editor ray pitt and i, I mean i don't know a lot right. about him yes. but clearly the editing is very interesting um, Charles, do you know, or Lawrence, have you, do you know much about his career? I think he continued into the mid-40s, at least, at Balkan's Ealing. Right. I mean, one of the really interesting things about pre-Balkan Ealing is how many good editors there were. David Lean and um, Thorold Dickinson did, both did more than one film there. And it's a fascina fascinating thing. I, I really want, if time remains to me, to do, to do marry the two Ealings together, compare and contrast, and the continuities particularly. And this is absolutely key continuity, I think, because Ronald Neem did continue under Balkan as a cameraman, uh, working, I think, on Form Formby films before and after the takeover of the studio. I, I think Ray Pitt did the Formby films as well, which are quite interestingly edited. Yes. But also, I mean, I think there's a sense in which 
like, yeah, I mean, he's clearly a great editor, but he couldn't have edited that stuff unless the stuff had been in the camera. And that's not stuff you would have put in the camera if you were shooting in a two shot. Do you know what I mean? You have to have considered, you have to have, before you started shooting, thought, this is going to how the this is going to how we're going to tell the story through the editing, in order to get those close-ups that you need to to do that. Yeah, which is so. I guess he must have, he and Greville must have presumably had some sort of chit chat before they even went on the floor. Grozzy. Any more for any more? Just a brief comment because we were talking about whether it was normal in the 1930s for the woman to have the central, the leading role, and. Well, the Cinema Museum, they've, they've, had, they've got a series going on called Women and Cocaine, yeah. based on pre-Hays Code films, and certainly it's, it's the norm in those, and they must have been quite a, quite a big slice of the overall... They're mostly American, aren't they, those um, women and they cocaine They are all films. Americans. Are all, so this, all this is a bit more restrained. I mean, they're a bit more sort of classic fallen women in the women and cocaine season quite often, but uh, yes, definitely they all are central to the plots. I had Mae West on last night, and uh, they said she was the highest-paid woman in the United States, the second-highest-paid woman, person rather, in the whole whole country at the time. She was making an absolute fortune. She was so popular, but she did go. She went to prison for a short time as well. So I think we're going to wrap up. So um, just um, well, there's the last one for a while. But uh, Lawrence's lecture on um, Quota Quickies is now online. I'll put it on the show notes. I think I already have done the last one, but I've got to put the show notes for this so you can watch quote, um, Lawrence talking about quota quickies. Charles has a million books out. My, um, is it maybe not a million? Um, <laughs> but my, the, the, the seminal Ealing book written by Charles, I meant to pick it with me actually, my, my well thumbed copy, but it's well worth reading. It's really were, interesting. It did read. go through, through three editions. I think I'm reading the first one uh, actually. And the third one, 1999, does have a bit that does have some extra stuff and particularly it, um, after writing the first book I rethought certain things so don't accuse me of being down on certain <laughs> films like Halfway House and They Came to a City which also has Renee Gad in it married to Raymond Huntley who I think she also had an affair with she got about it. Um, she gathered about. Uh, but um, yes, thank you. Thank you for mentioning that. And I hope there'll be a fourth edition. And then I'll perhaps put in a little tribute to this occasion as helping to inspire <laughs> me. To and, um, and even though Queen of Cookies is finishing, uh, my other podcast, Soho Bites, are coming back, which is about films set in Soho. Um, and people in this room have been guests on that podcast. Lawrence, Joe. I've heard about that people. from Lawrence, yes. Mm, that's um, very that's good. quite good well, fun. Before we go, our, our friend over here, Paul, is a manager of the Kino. He's been fantastic, and he's, uh, he's looked after us, and he is the Instagram king. And tragically, um, a few weeks ago, one of his friends was stolen from the oh. bar. A little dinosaur called something or other. What was the dinosaur called? Harold. Harold. Uh, <laughs> so... I think, Paul, if you'd like to come here in the glare of the, of the spotlight, we've got, a, we've got something to replace yeah, Harold for you. Oh. <laughs> um, attractive assistant, could you bring the replacement Harold down here? Yay! There you go. You can put batteries in it. It does, it does dance, but it's glued to the base now, so it won't, it won't work. But, um, there you go. Uh, and that's it. So hopefully see you all in October. And follow us on um, at Kino Quickies and we're on KinoQuickies.com for the podcast. And see you in the autumn. Yeah. Yeah.
I've never before seen a grown man so delighted to receive a cuddly dinosaur glued to a makeshift plinth. It truly was a heartwarming moment. And if you ever find yourself in the SE1 area of London, do pop into the Kino in Bermondsey Square to have a look at the new Harold the Dinosaur in pride of place behind the bar. Thanks again to Paul, Zoe and the rest of the team at the Kino for all your work over this first series of Kino Quickies. And we look forward to doing it all again with cheaper tickets, hurrah, in October. Thanks also to Nick Randall, who was our sound man for this last screening. And of course, thank you once again to the excellent Charles Barr for coming all the way to London from Norfolk to take part in the discussion and for choosing such a great film with which to close the season. I've put several links in the show notes at keynoquickies.com to Charles's various writings, including, of course, to that seminal book of his, Ealing Studios. Not sure yet which version that will be. Also in the show notes will be a link, as I mentioned, to Lawrence's online lecture all about Quota Quickies. It has the controversial title of Quota Quickies, The Worst Films Ever Made? Question mark. And if it's podcast you're after, please do check out my other film-related podcast, Soho Bites. That's at SohoBitesPodcast.com. And also its spin-off Poor Relation, Mural Morsels, at MuralMorsels.art. Find all of those links in one handy place, KinoQuickies.com. And do follow us on Twitter, at KinoQuickies, to be the first to hear about our next season in a few months' time. Kino Quickies is produced by me, Dom DeLaghi, and our resident quickie expert is the wise and patrician Dr. Lawrence Napper of King's College London. That's all the thanks done. Time to get back to brief ecstasy. Remember, I'm just about to conclude the story and reveal which man Helen decides to spend the rest of her life with. Will it be a life in India with handsome, exciting Jim and his biplanes and his raw sex appeal? Or will it be Paul with his slippers, his lashings of dependability and his enormous scientific brain? If you don't want to know, press stop now. No hard feelings and we'll see you in October. You have been warned. So, as you will recall, Helen has just allowed Jim into her room and she has said yes. Yes, she will leave Paul and come with Jim tonight. But then the front door quietly opens downstairs. But not, it seems, quietly enough for the super sharp hearing of Jim. What's that? There's somebody in the house. We see a shadow on the wall. Somebody is creeping up the stairs. Jim and Helen remain in Helen's room, straining their ears. And then we see Paul, but that's not him creeping up the stairs. He's just arrived in his study when he notices the shadowy figure. He goes to investigate. What are we going to do? Tell him the truth. Tell him we're going away together. Don't be a fool. We can't do that. I don't want any unpleasantness. Outside on the landing, Paul switches on the light to reveal... Martha! I came to catch them, making love, under your own roof. Jim Wyndham and Mrs Bernardi. Now, this minute, in your bedroom. See for yourself. Afraid of the truth? Afraid of losing a woman 20 years younger than you are? You wouldn't believe me. Treated me as if I were a blackmailer or something. Well, maybe you'll be wanting to apologise. To apologise to me. Wanting my sympathy when the rest of the world is laughing at you. You, an old man, thought you could hold the love of a girl. A girl young enough to be your own daughter. You dare to speak to me like that. You lost all sense of decency and truth. <laughs> Martha Russell, you must be mad. I've been in this house with Mrs. Bernard the whole of this evening. Now then, get out. Get out. No! 
Paul grabs the devastated Martha roughly and bundles her down the stairs and out the front door. He was lying, of course. He hasn't been in the house all night, but he now strongly suspects Martha was right. You heard him. Paul defending me. He knew we were here, and yet he lied to Martha. For me. For you. You were afraid to face him. I couldn't leave with you. Not now. Goodbye. I see. Downstairs, Paul enters his study, a broken man. He takes a revolver from his coat pocket and sits at his desk. And as a framed portrait of Helen looks on, he prepares to take his own life. But suddenly, Jim is in the room behind him, wearing his overcoat and carrying a suitcase. I've come to say goodbye. Leaving? Yes. I've got to get up to town tonight. I'm leaving by air for Marseille in the morning. Marseille? Yes, I'm flying east direct from there. So I thought I'd... I'd better come and say goodbye. Like a condemned man, Jim walks to the front door, an unlit cigarette in his lips, closely accompanied by his rival. Paul slips his hand into his revolver pocket and withdraws a lighter and lights Jim's cigarette. Thank you. Jim leaves. Back in the marital bedroom, with the tracks of her tears still visible on Helen's cheeks, the husband and wife face each other. Helen manages a weak smile, and we hear Jim's car outside pull away from the house. Paul and Helen embrace. He has wordlessly forgiven her, and she has made her choice. Thank <laughs> you.